Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talks here at the Abbey. Over the course of the run of Frank McGuinness's Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, I've been asking members of the cast about their approach to research, their approach to these young characters steeped in a hundred-year-old context, and if their preparation was framed, formed and fed by a piece of prose, a piece of art, or by pure instinct and osmosis. What follows is a series of short interviews that gives insight, heart and a vocabulary when all words fail. Enjoy these podcasts. I'm Paul Kennedy and uh, I play Nat McElveen. Nat is um, described by his partner in crime, Anderson, in the play as uh, a hateful git. (laughs) So I guess that was a good place for me to start. Um, He's he's full of uh, vim and vigour and uh, braggadocio. He's a he's a bit of a bully, to be honest. He's a he's a shipyard worker from Harland and Wolf. He uh, was involved in the making of the Titanic, uh, which would have took him up to 1912, uh, and I'm sure was very proud to be involved in that. But then when it sank, he felt that um, the sinking of the ship was a big punch in the gut for him personally and for Belfast. And for the shipyard, of course, but 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 for Belfast as a whole, and for its reputation, and after having done his first tour of duty, he's he's a UVF man like everyone else in the play, and uh, having done his first tour of duty and come home shell shocked, he's now um, he sees the sinking of the Titanic as a portent, as a symbol of uh, of what's to come for them. Uh, he he now understands it as a as a a sign he says in the play it's a sign of what we're in for what we've let ourselves in for so he thinks that all those souls that died in the Titanic was a was just a, a little taste of things to come and he thinks that everybody all all the the whole squad and the the 36th Ulster Division he thinks they're all in for a massacre uh, when it comes to going back to the song so he's haunted by that he's a uh, He's quite a paradoxical character. He's, you would think he's very simple, but there's also a sort of spirituality to the man. He does this thing uh, himself and and Anderson go back to the field, which was a sort of uh, historic place in Ulster where Orange Men marched to on the twelfth of July. And he had, he does this little spiritual ritual where he performs a libation. He pours whiskey on the ground, and. Uh, you know the the origins of libation is for you know it's for for the dead it's a drink for the dead and you even see it nowadays you know when things as diverse as rap music when you know rappers are pouring out their 40 ounce bottles one for my dead homies you know that's that's what he's doing it's 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 a libation for the dead uh so so there is a spiritual side to the man as well but he's very angry and he's very frustrated because he doesn't have anybody he has no um there's not very there's no mention of his of his family, there's no mention of a wife, there's no mention of a of a love for him back home. All he has is Anderson and the yard. Um, the only mention of his family in the play is uh, when he says, I broke my mother's heart growing up, which means that he, he was a bit of a tearaway, a bit of a wild one. Um, so there's no other mention of anything else. Uh, one, one, one other moment in the play I thought was very telling was when um, he he tells Anderson that in a moment of pure truth he, he reveals to his partner in crime Anderson that he can't go back 
he, he's going he's going to beat the drum to try and wake himself up another sort of aspect of his spiritual side he thinks that the drum will rouse him spiritually and enable him to go back to war so uh he he his fear before beating the drum is that if it doesn't wake him up he won't be able to go back and it takes a lot for him to admit to anderson that he can't go back to the war if if this thing doesn't wake him up and anderson loses his mind with him and says if you'll not discreet you will be go you'll go back to the war if i have to drag you back you won't disgrace yourself you won't disgrace your breed and you won't disgrace where you work so yourself obviously speaks for itself your breed he's talking about protestantism presbyterianism whatever it is at that stage and your work is is the yard the shipyard you won't disgrace the good name of the shipyard anderson doesn't mention his family which which was always telling for me so he's a bit of a loner he has he has no one and uh, it's, it's it's kind of it's a bit of a tragedy about that character you know there's i guess we're always trying to as actors look for the redeeming features or look for the good in the in our characters but with michael wayne it's i'm sure there's good in there somewhere but it's very it's buried very 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 deep the research for this character was a strange thing for me because um i'm not sure if you remember but in 2012 it was 100 years since the titanic had sank so every actor in Ireland and in Belfast was involved in some sort of Titanic thing and I was involved in a number of them. I did a, a movie about the Titanic where I played a, a, one of the engineers under the deck called uh, Herbert Harvey. So I did a lot of uh, research on that. Uh, I did a, a play uh, in Belfast with a fantastic company called Kabosh written by uh, an Abbey writer called Jimmy McAlevey. And the play was called Titans, um, and we performed it in the Titanic building, and in the Titanic drawing room where the the, the plans for the Titanic were drawn up. So um, there was a lot of research involved there. Incidentally, a bit of trivia for you: um, Thomas Andrews in that play was played by Ian McElhenney, who was the first ever person to play Michael Wayne. So there you go. So I, in terms of uh, any research that I needed to do about the shipyard and that sort of life and that uh, that time, I felt that I had saturated myself with that in 2012. I didn't need to go too deep into that. I just had to kind of recap on it. In terms of the World War One stuff, the only... Obviously there's books and there's poems and there's all that available to you. But I didn't really want... The character wouldn't have the hindsight, so I didn't... Like, I know a little bit about the Somme. And obviously I read about the 36th Ulster Division and about their operations, but I did. I purposely didn't want to know too much. I didn't want to know about Franz Ferdinand, and I didn't want to know about the origins of the war and which states were fighting each other, because I don't think these guys had a clue about that. And I think that they were in it for Ulster. I think they were doing something that they knew they had to do for Ulster and for the future of Ulster and for the future of the Union and I don't think the bigger picture really occurred to them and I think that's reflected in part three pairings when when it just dawns on all the characters that we are just cannon fodder it's what they are they were being sent to die I was um I was very fortunate to be involved in a, a film a few years ago uh, set in Belfast called 71 and um, it's about a young soldier who gets lost in Andersonstown and has to basically make his way down the Falls Road and get back to base to the safety of his of his military base and along the way he stumbles across um, a character played by Richard Dormer and they have a, dis a brief discussion on the on war 
and Richard Dormer's character says something that's so succinct and it's so brilliant and it's just I think it's the best description of war I've heard in, in literature or art um, he says war is just rich cunts sending dumb cunts to kill poor cunts I don't think you can put it any clearer than that we rehearsed this play in Brixton and there was uh, one of the things that the guy, the director and the, the crew all did for us was they just left a mountain of literature in the middle of the table. So there was poetry books, you know, you had your Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, obviously, and uh, the history books about the, the Somme and certain operations and whatnot. And they had, um, you know, the history of the UVF and the history of uh, Orange Men and the Battle of the Boyne and everything all pinned up around the wall. So we were just, we, we had everything there and we were, it, it was available to us and we did read it all. This one, I don't really know why it stuck out with me. I think it, um, the first line of this, of, of Wounds by Michael, Long, Michael Longley, the first line of the poem is, here are two pictures from my father's head. So straight away he's discussing a me someone else's memory. It, he goes on to talk about, you know, his father's memories of the psalm. Um, but they're not his, they're his dad's. The memories are going to be passed down to him through blood, like like a family heirloom. Even though they're not tangible, they're memories. And these memories become something that's maybe even stronger than something that is tangible. Something that they need to keep alive, pass down to the next generation and fight for. And that that's where tradition comes from. And that's, that's what Orangeism and in Northern Ireland is about, it's about tradition, it's, you'll, you'll hear that a lot, you know, the, there's, um, the, or the Orange Parades have their traditional roots that they walk down, so whenever they're asked to deviate from those roots because they might uh, go through a Catholic area or whatnot, there's uproar because it's the tradition, you know, where, as, as if it's some sort of, as if it's God-given, you know, it, it, it has to be done, you know, tradition is tradition, it's just, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's not law. Tradition is tradition can be broken. That's not an insult to your forefathers or the men who did whatever it is that you're doing before you for hundreds of years. It's just evolution. But in the play and in this poem and in Orangeism still today in the 21st century, tradition is just something that is just clawed onto. Uh, it's held onto very tight. So I think that's maybe why this stuck out for me. There's also other um, images in it, you know, there's um, a Scottish uh, padre, you know, going around um, basically covering over the dead soldiers' uh, bare flesh with his, with his stick, um, and it's like, they're already dead, <laughs> their dignity's been taken from them, mm. you know, what's, what difference is it going to make if they're covered or not? We've, we've already done them the ultimate disservice by, by taking their life away from them. You know, it's just there. There's lots of little things like that, in the, and then I think that he he draws a great comparison with the troubles today. In the play, Piper has the lead character. Piper has this moment where he says, before they go out to die, he says, "Let this day be as glorious in our minds as that day at the Boyne." So they want the psalm to be remembered, and I think that. In the troubles, there's now an element of that as well, and that's touched on in Longley's poem, where you see it on the Catholic side as well. You know, you even see it today. 
uh, you saw it during at the, at the start of the Troubles whenever it was uh, Republicans who were evoking the spirit of the 1916 martyrs and trying to recapture that and I think today that still happens with dissident Republicans I think that's what they're trying to do I'm not I'm not sure I, th I, th I think that's what they're trying to do and I think that's what's going on in this in the poem as well the younger generation is always trying to recapture the glory of the older generations to keep the tradition alive to keep to keep the fight alive I don't know it's like I've lived in Northern Ireland all my life and I just I still don't understand it <laughs> here are two pictures from my father's head I've kept them like secrets until now first the Ulster Division at the Somme, going over the top with fuck the Pope, no surrender. A boy about to die, screaming, give him one for the shankle. Wilder than Gurkhas were my father's words of admiration and bewilderment. Next comes the London Scottish Padre, resettling kilts with his swagger stick, with a stylish backhand and a prayer. Over a landscape of dead buttocks, my father followed him for 50 years. At last, a belated casualty, he said, laid traces flaring till they hurt. I am dying for king and country, slowly. I touched his hand, his thin head I touched. Now, with military honours of a kind, with his badges, his medals like rainbows, his spinning compass, I bury beside him three teenage soldiers, bellies full of bullets and Irish beer, their flies undone. A packet of woodbines I throw in, a lucifer, the sacred heart of Jesus paralysed as heavy guns put out the nightlight in a nursery forever. Also, a bus conductor's uniform. He collapsed beside his carpet slippers without a murmur, Shot through the head by a shivering boy who wandered in before they could turn the television down or tidy away the supper dishes. To the children. To a bewildered wife. I think, sorry, missus, was what he said. 